The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let us pray. We acknowledge, O Lord, our God, our unworthiness in and of ourselves to enter into thy presence, and we further confess that we dared not do so were it not for thy grace and mercy and the righteousness of thy Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom thou hast made us acceptable in thy holy sight. We bring thee our thanks and praise, humble ourselves in reverence and awe before thy majestic throne, and would with all that is within us bless thy great and holy and triune name. Draw near to us, grant us thy blessing with thy word, without which even thy word is unproductive in our unfertile souls. Grant that gratitude, peace, consecration, pursuit of holiness, zeal, assurance of salvation might spring up to abundance there and use us and this seminary in the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ spread abroad his gospel to the ends of the earth grant that many from many nations may see his beauty and desire him hear us for his sake and pardon our sins amen we turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and to verses 4, 5, and 6. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let us hear the word of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. May God bless to us his word. This is the middle stanza in this poem that we are considering. It focuses on the sufferings of the servant Messiah of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. Either side of it, uh, we have uh, an account, a report of what these sufferings are. But here in in this middle stanza, these central, crucial verses, we have what many commentators rightly regard as an explanation of these sufferings. And that's where we begin in our consideration of them. Life is so full of harrowing tragedies As we all know, they happen to good people. 
are not only to good people, the best person, the best person of all, the worst sufferings of all, to the best person of all. Are his sufferings any different? Are they inexplicable? Are they purposeless? If they are, then the whole of life is immoral, and any God that exists is evil. But if there is a purpose, then a light is cast on all suffering, which is not to be found anywhere else. And there is an explanation, isn't there? And wonder of wonders, it was given before the event. We've just read it. In the Old Testament scriptures, not merely a proclamation that the servant of the Lord would suffer, but a prediction that he would do so. The sufferings of Jesus, therefore, are part of a divine plan and purpose. They're there in Holy Scripture before we find a record of them that is fuller than we find in the old a fuller record in the new. The sufferings of the Messiah are something that God knew would need an explanation. And he gave it. There's truth and grace in the Old Testament scriptures in connection with the one who would come to accomplish the salvation of his people. Look at some of the lines of thought that we find in these verses that we have just read. First of all, there's a connection between sorrow and sin, or sorrow and the fall. Griefs, sorrows, in verse 4, are connected with the fact of the divine displeasure that exists over all mankind. Sorrow and sin are interrelated. They came into the world. The same day, thorns and briars and death itself, for not merely is sorrow connected with sin, but sin itself is connected with death. Sin is the culmination of sickness and grief. All came into the world on the same day as a penal evil. No sin, no sorrow, no death. For human beings, sorrow and sin, sin and death. And these verses tell us death and life. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. In Eden, not merely was everything ruined. If that had been the case, then God would have been evil. He had in advance determined that death would not have the last word even though sin would be committed because he had not only planned a way of salvation but appointed the one who would be the savior. And so he is reproved and punished and as a result there is healing and there's restoration. Now all these lines of truth Converge in these verses. 
sorrow and sin, sin and death, death and life. And they do so by the appointment of God and are indicated in his word and subsequently expanded and unfolded on uh, throughout the rest of scripture. So we can use these lines of thought for an explanation. Uh, By anticipation, more will be revealed in the New Testament, but here is light cast on the sufferings of the Messiah. It was because he identified himself with sorrows. It was because sin was identified with him. It was because he submitted himself to death. It was because the stroke of his father's displeasure fell on him. And consequently, life is available. These are the lines of thought which intersect as nowhere else but at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and do so with glory. For here is more revelation than we find anywhere else. Now, I hope that you would be concerned about me if I said no more. If I left the matter there and merely focused on these truths, these individual lights that combine into uh, a degree of radiance, even in the Old Testament, because these verses contain more than an explanation. They're not just an explanation. And the commentaries that I, or the commentators that I've referred to, he used the term explanation in the way they treat the verses, well, at least the best of them, go on to indicate that there's much more here than something theoretical, staggering, though that explanation is because here is a confession. A confession, not merely an explanation. Here are not a set of propositions true and accurate and irreplaceable, though they are. Here is something personal. The language is personal. It isn't only third person singular. It's first person singular. It's first person plural. It's a confession. Note these terms. Surely... We, our, all of us, twice, and each one of us as well, and he. We, me, you, and he. And not merely we and he. But finally, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You may remember that a couple of weeks ago, I half suggested that the final clause in verse 3 contained conceivably a glimmer of light 
The earlier stanza records the way in which this servant Messiah was dismissed and derided, despised by men, lonely, a man among men, a man of sorrows. Some of us thought about the expression a man of God a while ago, didn't we? God's man. Here's sorrow's man. Here's the one on whom sorrow in mounting waves broke over his soul. The waves and billows both of human grief and divine displeasure flooded over his mind and heart and spirit. And yet he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows who knew grief personally, at first hand, profoundly, unremittingly. He was despised and we esteemed him. Past tense. Is there the beginning of a better mind being intimated in that verb? Well, what follows makes it perfectly clear there was. Because here is a correction. This statement stands in marked contrast to all that has gone before. It begins, surely, how wrong we were to think as we had thought. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and then the recollection. But we esteemed how wrong we were, how wrong can human beings be, incorrigibly wrong, apart from the revelation of the arm of the Lord that enables them to see what formerly they were blind to, and that is what you have. Hear that report which the prophet and others made and apostles too and preachers have made down through the ages and into the sorrow of that statement who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Is there anyone? How many, how few believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. Ah, but there are some. And they won't be minute and insignificant. And all who see the arm of the Lord in the outstretched crucified hands of Jesus of Nazareth voice these words. Have you seen any glory in Jesus Christ and him crucified? Then these words are not a strange language to you. You've used them many times. You've said amen in your hearts to them, even as we've read them this morning. Here is a very personal confession. It's a confession of sin. And guilt. Not his, but ours. And not merely ours, but each one of us. Me, you. Because it was our griefs and sorrows, the results of our sins, 
that he bore and bore away and carried and sustained a weight that no one but a divinely a divine person incarnate could carry and bear away. Our griefs, our sorrows, not merely our sinful frailty, but our rebellion, our transgressions, our iniquities, our perversities, our dispeace, our alienation from God, our opposition to God. It was ours. That was our condition. It was yours. It was mine. And now we have these words confessing it. All we like sheep. Dumb, daft, dull, impulsive, unthinking, crowd following, submitting to our peers. All we like sheep have gone astray, following our own noses to hell. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's a confession, you see. It's a confession of sin and guilt. But it's more. It's a confession of faith. Because what the prophet is saying is this. These sinful frailties, these lusts, these vain thoughts... These dominating desires that result in rebellion and iniquity that were ours and ours alone are on his shoulders. He's borne them. He's carried them. He's experienced them. He's, he's somehow, while remaining sinless himself, made them his own. In my place condemned he stood, bearing shame and scoffing rude. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was accursed. He was chastised. He bore the burden. Paid the debt. How on earth can any of us make that kind of confession? What impudence, perhaps, what impertinence to say that our sins and our rebellion, ours, ours alone, were transferred to Jesus Christ. Is this the ultimate in blame shifting? No. Because this confession is not just a confession of sin and guilt. It's not just a confession of, God, of, of faith. It's a confession of God's immense grace because the Lord made the transfer. He took, and who else could, but the God who, against whom we have sinned. So much, so often, so flagrantly, he took all our sins and griefs and sorrows and rebellion and iniquity and he placed it 
on the shoulders and on the soul of his incarnate son. If that hadn't happened, then any attempt on our part to deal with our sin is impossible. Any attempt to think that somehow Jesus can be of benefit to us sinners is impossible. It's the fact that God did something. He did it in grace. Grace isn't just something we don't deserve. It's the opposite of what we deserve. It's God dealing with him as we deserve. And so dealing with us as he deserves. Have you believed? Has this become personal to you? Have you trusted Jesus, the Christ of God, as your sin bearer? And the one who has borne away the holy curse from our unworthy souls. Amen. Let us pray. Receive our thanks, O Lord. We acknowledge that it is only because of thy great grace and mercy and thy Son's holy righteousness in life and death, and yet his identification within us, with us with all our sin and need, that we have peace with thee and healing from thee. Ever keep us in the awareness of our immense indebtedness to thee and him brought home to us by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.